The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you, Ecclesia. If you have a seat, would you um, take a seat? And if you don't, and if you don't, I'm sorry. Um, I can see some college guys that are going to give you their seat before the service is over. I'm positive of that. And, uh, and I can let you know that we really did work hard to provide a seat for you. We had amazing gatherings uh, yesterday. We had very faithful brothers and sisters that got up to come to the 7 a.m. service, if you can believe it or not. It was a very full room at 7 a.m. We learned that at Ecclesia, uh, you can bribe people with mimosas and bacon to do almost anything. And uh, people will get up at 7 a.m. if you tell them we have bacon and mimosas. And, uh, and this year, particularly it was important because this is a historic Easter in the life of our church. This is our 19th year to get to celebrate Easter as a church. And, um, and it's our first year to celebrate Easter after we have opened our campus on the west side, Ecclesia on the west side. And um, you can imagine the services have been crazy and full. There's no way we could have done it without the three services that have been taking place over there. And so if you've got friends or neighbors that live in that neighborhood, it's been really, really exciting. But it's uh, created some challenges as we try to figure out how do we uh, provide for the teaching and all the things that we need to do at our church now that we have the second campus that has simultaneous meeting times. And so um, because I don't like to miss an Easter service at Ecclesia, I've never missed one in the history of our church, we're doing some pretty, pretty crazy things to go back and forth to both services uh, this weekend so that we can celebrate together uh, with the whole church. And most of you have realized this year, uh, we've gotten to make some really beautiful decisions that have made this possible. So uh, one of those on the west side is we've hired a fabulous campus pastor there named Titus Benton. And if you get the chance, you want to meet Titus. Uh, it's been really helpful on both campuses uh, that God has blessed us with the opportunity to really give me a true preaching and teaching partner and our dear brother, Sean Palmer. How many of you have been blessed by Sean's teaching over the last year? Right. And... Um, Sean has been a tremendous gift to the church, and uh, if you were here at the 7 a.m., we presented, this is his 20th year uh, as a pastor, so this is his 20th Easter to serve as a pastor, uh, so we uh, gave him a special gift, a really nice watch, and a t-shirt that says, I've been a pastor for 20 years, and all they gave me was this lousy watch, and, uh, and we're just, we're grateful for his service, and then the other thing that we've done to try to leverage every opportunity we have is that when I get to travel... Um, we tried to seize the opportunity to be able to, to teach you from the places that I go. And uh, so we've learned historically at Ecclesia, technology has its upsides and its downsides, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing that the phone that most of us carry in our hand has more computing power than they had at the time that we launched our first mission to the moon. But we've also learned that having that kind of computing power in our hand can be really addictive, right? It can, uh, it can be a bit of a struggle. But where we can use technology um, to take our church someplace that we literally could not take the whole church, um, we think that's quite a gift. So this summer, I'll get to take you to some of the water wells that we're drilling this year in Africa. And you're going to get to meet churches and pastors that are impacted by the water and the way that we get to share the good news of Jesus through clean water. Um, it, how many of you were here about a month ago 
uh, when I got to teach you from a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Were many of you around for that message? So, um, so for me, it's, it's pretty special to get to preach on the Sea of Galilee. Um, some of you hopefully will get to go to the Sea of Galilee over the course of your lifetime, but the hope is that if I get to take you there via video, what's gonna happen is the next time that you read a passage in the Bible about the Sea of Galilee, you're gonna have a picture in your mind. In fact, your imagination's gonna take you even further into the story of Jesus. And my hope is it's gonna make you wanna read the Bible more and more and more. And so the goal today, we're, I'm gonna get to share with you uh, from a really special place in the Holy Land. Um, it's a place that even though my grandfather uh, took 30 groups, he was a pastor here in the city for 60 years, he took 30 groups to the Holy Land, but he'd never been to this place because it's a recent archeological discovery. It's a first century synagogue in the hometown of Mary of Magdala, a little town called Magdala on the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and the beauty for us is that um, I can take you there and show you this synagogue and tell you why it's significant historically. And you don't actually have to do what's awful about travel. You don't actually have to get into a plane, right? Uh, because the truth is, uh, travel seems really glamorous and fun until you actually get into a plane, right? And it's the moment that you get into a plane that you go like, I don't really want to go here after all, right? And you start looking around, you realize like, I'm in a small metal tube. This is totally unnatural with a few hundred people. And as you start to look at the people, you think most of these people look like they're sick. Like, I think that guy's running a fever. And she needs to wipe her nose. And just all of a sudden you realize, like, I got to get out of this plane. And one of the things that I've learned in air travel is that putting hundreds of people in a small metal tube uh, brings out the worst in their human nature. In fact, um, my consistent observation is that what happens to people as soon as they get inside that tube, they have this sense that the rules do not apply to them, right? And that whatever rules there are for flying in the sky, especially if they're unspoken rules. So some of them are written down by the FAA and announced by flight attendants, right? And some of them are just things you need to know, right? Like if you're going to travel, you need to know that if you sit in the middle seat, you get what? You get the armrests, right? <laughs> like it sucks for you that you've got to sit in the middle seat, but at the very least, you get the armrests. So if you don't know that, you shouldn't fly, okay? Because um, if you're in the window, you get your armrest, the guy in the aisle gets that armrest, and the poor dude in the middle seat needs to get both armrests. So if you're the person trying to nudge them off their armrests, right, that's not cool. That's, we're in a society, and that's part of the rules. The middle seat person gets the armrest. And as people get on planes, they start to increase their anxiety, right? In fact, I'm a big fan of the ABC show Lost. I wrote a book about it. It starts with a plane crash. But if I got on a plane and I saw one of the characters from Lost on the plane with me, I would be convinced the plane was going down, right? And so when people start to feel that anxiety and stress, they often do crazy things. I've been on a, a lot of planes with guys like that, right? Where you go, I don't know how many that is, but that's excessive, right? The only thing worse than being on a plane with that guy is being on a plane with that guy. Right? Literally, I, I'm pretty sure I've been on the plane with that guy. So a lot of people are trying to deal with that anxiety of getting on a plane um, by bringing along their emotional support animals. How many of you have been on flights with people and you're like, this place feels like a zoo. There are animals everywhere. A lady recently came to a United flight wanting to bring her emotional support peacock <laughs> on the plane, right? Gratefully, uh, United denied her. Uh, but it's not surprising when you see that this Chinese guy was able to bring his pet panda 
on the plane or the, uh, the penguins. I could keep going. I found like geese and ducks and this is the actual point of it, Ecclesia. Um, in the same way that people get on a plane, and I'm telling you, whether it's exiting or whether it's like some people wait until the pilot says you can't go to the restroom to go to the restroom, right? Um, in the same way, what I've noticed is that even among people that believe in the resurrection, like with all their heart, it's awful when the pastor doesn't have his phone on vibrate, <laughs> that there are many people that believe somehow that the story of the resurrection doesn't apply to them, that somehow they've been left out of this narrative. And if you know what it feels like to be left out, anybody ever seen, maybe you see it on social media, like all your friends got together and you weren't invited? <laughs> There's a sense of like, you guys all got together and you didn't tell me you were getting together? Or maybe you can identify with what it feels like to be that guy, I can't remember his name, but he was apparently like Mark Zuckerberg's roommate and says, hey, we came up for, with Facebook together. And now it's like, he's the billionaire and I'm just the dude, right? I've kind of been left out of this story. And today we're gonna to take a very singular focus at Easter because one of the things I've realized in the church is that oftentimes, for a number of reasons, that people, uh, there are a lot of people that have felt left out. And particularly in the narrative of scripture, sometimes women have particularly felt left out. And it's, um, it's more than sad because as we read the scriptures, this is what you're gonna find, and we're gonna focus on it today, is that it's easy, it's actually really easy to make a case that the most faithful disciples Jesus had were women. The men, right, <laughs> they were messing up all the time. All the time. They didn't get it. They were sleeping when he asked them to pray. They were betraying him. Right? When things got really hard, when Jesus was being crucified, do you remember who was there with him? It's an easy question. It was the women and John, one of the guys. John was the lone male disciple to show up at the crucifixion. And what happened in the days after the crucifixion? You remember where the guys were? They were hiding behind locked doors, right? The dudes were on the run. And you know what the women were doing? They were gathering together to go take care of his body. They were doing the work. And so today at Ecclesia, we're gonna celebrate the role of women in the resurrection narrative and in our church and in our lives. We're gonna look around and we got faithful daughters, wives, mothers, sisters. And what we want you to hear today and anybody else who feels left out of the resurrection narrative for any reason, that this story is for everyone, everyone, that no one is to be left out in this story. And so together, we have our dear sister, Amina Brown. You're going to love her. She's a spoken word poet. She's going to tell you some stories about her mother and her grandmother about the woman at the well. We're gonna celebrate women. I'm gonna teach you from this unique place in the hometown of Mary Magdala. It's a historic site that I'm just so amazed that I can take you there so that you can see it. And together we're gonna to celebrate communion and baptism. And we're gonna ask God to do a work in us. So I wanna tell you, we're glad that you're here. Some of you are visitors, we're glad that you're here. We wanna celebrate the risen Lord together. And we believe at Ecclesia that the fact that Jesus 
made all things, that he loves us and knows us, that he came to earth to live a perfect life, and that he died so that we could be reconciled with one another and with him, that it's the most beautiful gift we can receive and that it changes everything. Ecclesia, happy Easter. He is risen, and it is with great joy that I get to invite you into one of my favorite places in the world today. I am on the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee of Judea, uh, in a small city called Magdala. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to guess who might have come from the town of Magdala. In fact, like many of us, we just end up with a nickname. We call somebody Kansas, because he came from Kansas. After the storm, we had a lot of people coming in, and people just became, hey, that's California, and that's Las Vegas, that's where they're from, and we're really grateful they came in and were serving. Mary became Mary Magdala. She was from the town of Magdala. And I am in a remarkable spot on the Sea of Galilee. Our friends at the Catholic Retreat Center, they built a beautiful retreat center in Jerusalem that we've had groups stay at. They decided to build a similar place on the Sea of Galilee. And when they started, they prayed that they wouldn't have any problems with archeology. span And they said, well, if we do, we hope it's a big problem, it's something beautiful. They had no idea that when they started to build a retreat center, they were going to uncover the only first century synagogue on the Sea of Galilee. What's the Bible tell us? That Jesus taught in and around the synagogues all along the Sea of Galilee. So I get to sit here inside this beautiful first century synagogue. There's still frescoes with beautiful color. Uh, they, they've not been redone, that's the original color. Mosaic tiles, this would have been a teaching area in a first century synagogue. The teacher in the synagogue would have been sitting here. I didn't want to sit in Jesus' spot because I'm not Jesus. I thought I'd sit close to where Jesus sits. And on Easter, in the city where Mary Magdala is from, I wanna invite you to join with me to celebrate the women of Easter. Often as we look at these narratives, there's just things we miss or we overlook or we focus on one thing too much. And what often is missed in the Bible is the reality that Jesus had women, a circle of friends who were women that were faithful followers and disciples of Jesus. We tend to focus on these 12, but in the passage we're gonna to read today, we're reminded that these faithful women were an important part of Jesus' life and his ministry. And as it is in culture, as it is in our day, uh, sometimes our understandings of gender can divide us as people rather than bring us together. And for most of us, I think we're like Jesus and you end up in this place where you realize the people around you that were most faithful were women in your life. You could start like Jesus with your mother, your sister, your cousin, your aunt, your neighbor, a schoolmate. Have you ever wondered why it is that Jesus had these 12 disciples that were constantly going to sleep when he needed them to pray, betraying him? In the days after the resurrection, they were hiding out behind closed and locked doors. Well, you know what the women were doing at that point? They were out going to find and anoint his body. Um, they were doing remarkable work. So on this Easter of 2018, I'd ask you to join with me and dedicate this day to the women in our lives, women that have served us well, our mothers, our sisters, our wives, our daughters. If you're a father of daughters, you know what it is to want to see women thrive in this world. And what we know is in the scriptures, it's often overlooked, but women have been faithful. They have thrived, they have served. And we see it so clearly in Mark, chapter 16. Join with me as we read it. 
he tells us, the rising of the sun after the Sabbath on the first day of the week, the two Marys and Salome brought sweet smelling spices they had purchased to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And along the way, they wondered to themselves how they would roll the heavy stone away from the opening. But when they arrived, the stone was already rolled away in spite of its weight and size. And stepping through the opening, they were startled to see a young man in a white robe seated inside and to the right. And the man in white said to them, don't be afraid. You came seeking Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. He is gone. He is risen. See this place where his body was laid. Go back and tell Peter and his disciples that he goes before you into Galilee, just as he said. You will see him there when you arrive. And the women went out quickly. And when they were outside the tomb, they ran away, trembling in the Greek word, tromos or traumatized and astonished. In the Greek, it's even stronger, ecstasis, to be in ecstasy. Can you imagine Ecclesia? Uh, they were filled with both trauma and ecstasy. That's part of what we're gonna talk about today. And it tells us in that gospel that along their way, they didn't stop to say anything to anyone because they were too afraid. Ecclesia, isn't that fascinating? The way that Mark, of all the ways he could describe their interaction with the angel, and their newfound understanding of the resurrection, he uses the word trauma and ecstasy to these three unique women that all played a unique role in Jesus' life. Now, if you've been around uh, something like childbirth, you might share a similar sentiment, right? Childbirth is filled with trauma and ecstasy. In fact, it's the collision of the two, these, this tremendous pain. Can you imagine uh, for Mary, the mother of Jesus, what this must have felt like? Much like his birth, this same woman, if you can only imagine what it would be like to be a mother that went through pain and trauma, we know she went through a special pain and trauma because she traveled a long ways on a donkey, not an ideal way to have a baby, then had the baby in a barn. But she loved her son and she was amazed that God would use her to be a vessel of salvation for all people. And then ultimately to have to watch that same son die. The pain that she was going through, physical pain, the trauma that we know is real. When you see something happen, when uh, we experience pain and suffering together, it's traumatic. We feel it in our body as Dan Allender reminded us. We experience physical reaction to these outside circumstances. Birth is filled with trauma and ecstasy. And part of what I'd suggest to you today is that women are particularly familiar with the combination of trauma and ecstasy. Let's take a moment and look at the three unique women in this story. First, we see Mary, the mother of Jesus. Imagine now she's 47 years old. She was a teenage mom. Now at the time of Jesus' death, she would have been about 47, about my age. She's seen a lot of life. She's experienced the hope and pain and disappointment of what it is to follow Jesus, to know that her son uh, had come to bring life, but to bring it in some really difficult and hard ways. When you live with that kind of clarity, we know that originally after he was born, that it tells us that she pondered these things in her heart, she was silent. What we heard in Mark was that these women were traumatized and ecstatic, and that for a time they were silent. My guess is they weren't silent for long. That Mary had that silent focus. 
the kind of focus that we see in someone like Lucille Bridges, who was with us at Ecclesia recently. Lucille was a leader in the civil rights movement because she loved her little girl, Ruby, and trusted that her little girl, Ruby, should be the one to be able to integrate schools in New Orleans. The year was 1954, and we know that little Ruby Bridges thought it was Mardi Gras when she had to go to school because she was accompanied by so many armed guards. She, there was such a fuss around her. Norman Rockwell did a painting of what this looked like. Lucille Bridges had the look in her eye that many of you know. In fact, if you've seen it, you know when to step back. A woman that's experienced trauma and ecstasy and she knows what she needs to do. Lucille Bridges knew that Ruby needed to go to a school where she was gonna get a great education and you couldn't stop her. I think Mary was the same way. She knew that her little baby boy not only died, but that he was resurrected, and she would eventually tell anyone and everyone about him. Or maybe we think of Salome, the aunt of Jesus, a woman who supported him throughout his life, maybe like a lot of you with aunts, mentors, teachers, people that just encouraged you, loved you, walked with you. Today on Easter, will you think of who those women are? Would you reach out to them? Would you say thank you? Would you celebrate the unique gift that they bring to your life? And then thirdly, we see this woman, Mary of Magdala. Mary could have easily been the most faithful of all disciples, of anyone Jesus could have chosen to send to the apostles. Literally, what the Bible tells us is that she was the apostle to the apostles. She was the one sent to tell the apostles that Jesus was risen so that he could send them out to the ends of the earth. Throughout history, her reputation has been uh, tarnished in ways that are untrue. They just don't fit the story of the Bible. What we know in the Bible is this a woman that Jesus loved, who loved Jesus, who when everybody else was on the run, she was moving towards Jesus. We've talked about this a lot. After Harvey, we found out who our friends were. Our friends moved towards us in crisis, not away from us. And the disciples were running. Mary of Magdala was present at the crucifixion. In fact, all four gospels talk about Mary of Magdala being present at the resurrection. This is a key woman in the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what you ought to know today. Many of you have thought that the Bible comes from a time and place that was bigoted, and so surely God must be bigoted. God must be in this place that he looks down on one gender as being less than another. And what the Bible tells us is exactly the opposite. That God's activity in the world came through beautiful, remarkable, smart, passionate, loving women. Barbara K. Lundblad says it this way. She says, of all the Easter gospels, Mark's story invites us to stand where those first trembling witnesses stood. Those three women didn't see Jesus, neither do we. They didn't hear Jesus call their names and neither have we. They weren't invited to touch his wounded hands. We haven't touched Jesus' wounded hands either. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, who is the mother of Jesus, and Salome are our silent sisters. The narrative is left for us, the readers, to complete. I believe, Ecclesia, that you and I both share much in common with these women. We've experienced trauma and we've experienced ecstasy. And for a time we were silent and we didn't know what to do. But if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it's time to share it. 
The beauty of the gospel is that it is not a zero-sum game. Much of the world believes that if women thrive, men are gonna lose something. If women get power and influence and they use their gifts and they serve, that men lose. In fact, if you're a part of the kingdom of God, in fact, if you're just a father, you know it's not true. That when women thrive, when women use their gifts, that exponentially men and children, all of us are blessed. The message of Easter is a message for all people. And we hear it fully in this beautiful passage in Acts chapter 10. It's clear to me now that God plays no favorites, that God accepts every person, whatever his or her culture or ethnic background, that God welcomes all who revere him and do right. You already know that God sent a message to the people of Israel. It was a message of peace, peace through Jesus the anointed, who is king of all people. You know this message spread through Judea, beginning in Galilee, where I am today and where John called people to be ritually cleansed through baptism. You know God identified Jesus as the uniquely chosen one by pouring out his Holy Spirit on him, by empowering him. You know Jesus went through the land doing good for all and healing all who were suffering under the oppression of the evil one, for God was with him. And my friends and I stand, Peter says, as witnesses to all that Jesus did in the region of Judea and the city of Jerusalem. The people of our capital city killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made it possible for us to see him. Not everyone was granted this privilege, only those of us whom God chose as witnesses. We actually ate and drank with him. After his resurrection, one of those meals right here on the Sea of Galilee, he told us to spread his message to everyone and to tell them that he is the one whom God has chosen to be judged to make a just assessment of all people, both living and the dead. All the prophets tell us about him and assert that every person who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Ecclesia, Peter was right, Jesus was right. The whole story, the gospels and the scripture are right. God's love is for all peoples. And the story of Easter is a story of God extending that love to everyone. I want you to pray today about what it would look like to call your neighbor. You can invite him to an Astros game. You can invite him to one of the next Easter services. But the love of Jesus, if you believe in it, if it's touched you, if it's changed you, that's a message you ought to share. Maybe you're like those women, you had a moment of silence, you were in trauma and you were ecstatic to know that Jesus was risen. But after it settled in on you, the truth of that good news meant we need to sing it and we need to share it. So let's do that today, Ecclesia. He is risen, happy Easter. She said, how do you know when you're hearing from God? I didn't know how to explain. It is to explain the butter grit of cornbread to a mouth that just discovered it has a tongue. The sound of jazz to ears that only ever thought they'd be lobes of flesh. The sight of a sunset to a blinded eye that in an instant can see to fail. At the ability to describe how the scent of baked bread can make the mind recall a memory, every detail of a house, a room, a conversation, like explaining to a newborn baby, this is what it feels like to be held. My words never felt so small, so useless, so incapable. I wanted to tell her, Put your hand in the center of your chest. Feel the rhythm there. I wanted to tell her you will find the holy text in so many places. 
on crinkly pages of scripture in a dusty hymnal in the creases of a grandmother's smile, the way she clasps her hands and prays familiar as if to dignitary and friend, the way she sings a simple song from her spirit and her porch turns into a cathedral, I learned from my great-grandmother how to pray, how to talk to God, how to listen watching her and the other silver-haired church mothers gather in her living room. See, they prayed living room prayers because you don't have to be inside the four walls of a church to cry out to the God who made you. And despite what the law say, or what our human flaws say, God's ears don't play favorites. God's ears don't assess bank accounts or social status before they attune themselves to the story that your tears or your fears are telling. God's ears are here for the babies for the immigrant and the refugee, for the dreamers, for the orphan and the widow, for the depressed and the lonely, for the oppressed and the helpless, those about to make a mess or caught in the middle of cleaning one up. Dirt don't scare God's ears. God is a gardener. God knows full well. It takes rain and sun and soil to make things grow. I wanted to tell her, to experience God, you've got to be willing to experience what's holy in a place that some people don't even deem to be sacred, that sometimes God sits next to you on a bar stool, spilling truth to you like too many beers that he knows full well the dance will do when we love ourselves so little that just about anyone will do that God cares about the moments we find ourselves on the edge of a cliff on the edge of sanity, on the edge of society. I wanted to tell her God is always waiting, lingering after the doors close and the phone doesn't ring and we are finally left alone that God is always saying, I'm here. I love you, don't go, stay, please. That God is always pleading with us to love, to trust, to listen how God's voice is all melody and bass lines and thunder and grace. Sometimes when I pray, I think about her how the voice of God was lingering in her very question. How just like her, just like you, just like me, we're all still searching, still questioning, still doubting. I know I don't have all the answers. I know I never will. Maybe the best thing we can do is put our hand in the middle of our chest, feel the rhythm there, turn down the noise in our minds and our lives and whisper, God, whatever you wanna say, I'm here, I'm listening. Thank you so much. Happy Easter, Ecclesia. You all are spoiling me. I've been joking with uh, the staff here. I said, well, I've been here all these services and no one booed so far, so I feel like everything's going great. Thank you all so much. Uh, it's always an honor uh, to be invited into the services of a church community, but particularly to be invited on Easter weekend. So it is my honor to be here with you, and I'm especially honored that we're talking about the role uh, that women played in the gospel story. And for me, my story of how I came to know the gospel uh, was so influenced by my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my mother. And uh, my grandmother actually just turned 85 this past fall. And I don't know how often you get a chance to hang out with people who are 85, but it's actually really, really cool because 85-year-olds um, really don't care about your feelings um, as much. Uh, they've already lived 85 years. They're just like really keeping it real with you and just let you deal with your feelings on your own time. Uh, my grandma actually recently was like, Mina, I think you need to start doing some of these. I'm like, what is she staring at my midsection? 
So since my grandma's birthday was in October, you know, we'd already planned, you know, we're going to celebrate her. We actually surprised her with a cupcake party for her 85th birthday. And that's a big deal because my grandmother's not the kind of woman that you surprise, you know. But she also told us, you know, you can celebrate in October, but we're going to go ahead and start in the summer. You start celebrating my birthday in the summer. And she's 85, so we just said, yes, ma'am, that's exactly what we'll do. So my cousin, he uh, rents this really nice beach house and all of us, my grandma, her kids, her grandkids, her great grandkids, all of us in the same house. And there was a pool in the backyard. Now at these types of gatherings, uh, I like to be a part of what's called the inside ministry, which is the ministry where you are inside in the AC while you enjoy God's creation through a window is the way I prefer it to go. The trees are out there, but the mosquitoes are not inside. And that's my way I like to be. So I was inside, my husband runs inside. He's like, babe, your grandma is in the pool. This is like your grandma's first time in her whole life being in a pool. You gotta come out here and take her picture. I get out there. My grandma is in the most adorable bathing suit that you've ever seen in your life. It has like the little ruffles at the hips. I mean, it's everything, okay? Take her picture out there, and she's telling us how she grew up in a small town in North Carolina during the time of segregation. And in the town where she grew up in, there was no pool that a black family could go to. None of the public pools black people were allowed to have access to. So she didn't experience going to the pool as a child, as a teenager. And once she got older and got her own family, she just never took that opportunity once it was afforded to her. And I'm assuming, you know, when you grow up where something has sort of been taken away from you by this injustice, that that can have this uh, scarring effect on you too, you know? But for some reason at 84 years old, my grandma decides, you know what? I'm not gonna let injustice have the end of the story here. I'm not gonna let a wrong that was done to me tell me how the story has to end. I'm 84 and I'm getting in the pool. <laughs> and I love about my grandma how just watching her live, she teaches me so much about Jesus. I think Easter Sunday is a big invitation to get in the pool, right? And in this case, the pool is to believe. It's to get in on the faith. It's to get in on the part of believing in somebody that you may not be able to physically touch or see, but who is actually more real than all the things that we can touch or see, right? And I thought about Jesus and his relationship to bodies of water. We're watching Jesus do this. We're watching him uh, there inviting Peter to walk on the water with him. We watch Jesus heal a man who was waiting on the side of a pool to be healed. He's waiting for the water of the pool to be stirred so that he can be healed. Jesus heals him before he can even get into the pool, right? And we're also watching Jesus talk to a woman at a well. We could stop at the fact that we're watching Jesus talk to a woman. The disciples are constantly like, I feel like they're kind of trying to be, you know, the scruples for Jesus. Like, Jesus, we told you, stop talking to those people. That's not allowed over here. That's not what we do. And Jesus is like, it is actually what we do. He's there at a well talking to this woman that based upon her gender, based upon her cultural background, based upon her story or the story that had been told about her, she is not the kind of person Jesus should be talking to. And I am so glad he talked to her because it helps me feel like Maybe Jesus wants to talk to me too, because I am also a somebody that I'm like, Jesus definitely should not be spending time talking to me, right? That's what today is about. 
It's about Jesus saying, come over, come here, talk with me. Even if you feel like you belong in the crowd of people that people would say I shouldn't be talking to, yeah, you, I want you, come over here, come closer to where I am. And the other thing I love about this story of the woman at the well is we're almost watching her sort of leaning on this something that's never gonna satisfy her. And every human being knows that story because we all have a something or someone that we're leaning on, that we're hoping is going to fix us, that we're hoping is going to satisfy whatever our empty stuff is inside. And I can tell you nothing's going to satisfy that emptiness in your soul except for Jesus. So if you're waiting on the side of the pool today, this is your opportunity. Come in. Come closer to Jesus. And if you're waiting at the well today, quit leaning on that. Come get yourself filled with something that can satisfy everything inside your soul. This poem's called Waiting at the Well. We wait at wells. We come to try the water we hope will satisfy our souls instead of our throats. We come up empty because insecurities and comparison and keeping up with appearances just don't fill us as much as we thought they would. Jesus is waiting at our wells to ask us about the thirst that lies underneath our obsessive ambitions, the ways we cling to our status, how we find our identity in the temporary. But Jesus doesn't get caught up in our headlines. He knows our backstory. He knows the broken places we come from. He knows about sickness and disease, about doctor visits and no cure, about being broke and broken, that our only hope for healing lies in the hem of his clothing. He knows we worry about so many things but he wants us to find ourselves at his feet, to pour out our concerns, our hopes, our dreams. He wants us to take his truth, fold it into our hearts until we watch it come alive in our lives. He wants us to choose him over money, over popularity, over comfort and privilege and pride. He knows sometimes that we are waiting for miracles where our prayers seem to be dangling in unanswered midair. He knows we have watched sickness and death come for our loved ones, how we have been rattled by calamity and tragedy, but he wants us to press through the crowds now. Press past the fear that says we don't deserve him, past the shame that says we're unworthy. He wants to walk with us on our journey even when we carry doubt and uncertainty, Jesus. He finds us waiting at the well because he knows we want so badly to get well. Because he knows we've tried for years to fix ourselves, searching for love in the most dangerous of places, expecting to be taken advantage of. He knows that we cannot fathom his kind of love, the kind of love that must arrive at a cross and a crown of thorns. There are some things that Jesus will Good Friday lay to rest and some things that he will Lazarus Easter Sunday resurrect. He knows about standing beside tombs, that sometimes where it seems life has written us an ending, Jesus is composing very new beginnings. Jesus is waiting at the well for the tired, for the weary, for the thirsty, for the poor and the oppressed, for the outcast and the overlooked, for the many, for the few. Jesus is waiting for you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.